All right. Thanks, guys. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, in which we see the message of Jesus Christ to the seven churches. Tonight, we are going to see once again, as we have already seen several times in the book of Revelation, a fixation on the person of Jesus Christ. But in the text that we have tonight, Jesus Christ is not going to be pictured as a man as he was in Revelation chapter 1. Rather, he's going to be pictured as the, as in the way that we just sang about him. He's going to be pictured as the Lamb. And we're going to see a singular statement about Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. And that's what we're going to title this tonight. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. The Lamb in this text, as we will see, is Jesus Christ. And so in that, we understand Revelation chapter 4 and 5 to revolve around the statement that Jesus is worthy. Now, as we have already been about a month in this study of Revelation, we saw in chapters 1 and 2 that there is clearly a theme in this gospel, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, of the response that this book is intended to produce. And this is a principle that we've drawn from this book, that that we've highlighted, and that we're going to continue to highlight. And that is that the book of Revelation is meant to produce repentance and faithfulness in those who hear it. The book of Revelation, though it is awesome and fun and fascinating and sometimes just weird, is not meant for the sake of just satisfying curiosities or creating cool charts or anything that you may naturally want to use the book for. No, the book of Revelation is meant that those who hear it would repent of their sin and that those who love Jesus Christ would remain faithful to him. That is the intended response of the book of Revelation that focuses on the return of Christ and all of the events that surround it. Well, last week we saw in chapters 2 and 3 the letter to the seven churches, and this message was so clear. To half the churches he said, repent, repent, turn from your sin. To To the other half of the churches he said, hold on, stay faithful, remain allegiant to me, and I will reward you. That is the message of the book of Revelation. It's crystal clear in chapters 2 and 3, but there's a break between chapter 3 and chapter 4 where we enter the text tonight in chapter 4. There's a a transition. We we quickly move in in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 to a brand new scene. Now we're going to see the same players. We're still going to see Jesus Christ as central in, in our focus But if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, John writes, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing up in heaven. There is a transition there. John, there was a fluid message in chapter 2, verse 3. Then he says, After that, after that finished, after those letters wrapped up, I looked, and I saw a door up in heaven. This is a new scene. And in fact, the the whole rest of the book of Revelation is going to hinge off of chapter 4. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus Christ revealed. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw the letter to the churches. In chapter 4, we begin to see, for the first time, the future. When he was writing to all of the churches, he was describing their sin that's happening right now. 
but a primary motivator for those churches to turn from their sin was what was coming in the future. Tonight, we begin to see what's coming in the future that would motivate the churches to be faithful and to repent. As he transitions to the events that are to come yet in the future, what's going to be focused on in the coming chapters is seven seals. Seven seals. Um, We're not going to see those seals tonight. We're going to see them next week. But this scene begins the conversation about the seven seals. Those seven seals begin the outpouring of God's wrath upon humanity. God's wrath will be poured out upon humanity and that begins in the book of Revelation with seven seals that are opened and God's wrath is poured out. This is the beginning of that scene. This is the introduction to God's wrath being poured out upon humanity. But what I want us to know before we even jump into this text is this truth. All of the tribulation that will be poured out upon humanity comes from God and leads to the worship of God. We're going to see that crystal clear in this text tonight. There are seals that are going to be opened and God's wrath will be poured out upon humanity. But all that is going to happen comes from God and leads to worship of God. This whole book, again, it's intended to produce faithfulness and repentance. It's written to produce true and genuine worship in the life of those who hear it. And so all that is going to be poured out upon humanity is going to lead to the worship of God. We're going to see that in heaven tonight. And we're going to see that ultimately through the book is needing to be manifested in our own lives. So how we're going to break this down tonight is we're going to enter the throne room where God sits on the throne and we're going to see four awe-inspiring elements of the overwhelming scene in the throne room. Four awe-inspiring elements of the overwhelming scene that takes place in the throne room. So we're going to move through these four elements quickly tonight. We're taking an overview look at this book. So quickly, we're going to look at four elements of this scene in the throne room. The first element that we see in the throne room is the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. John writes, after these things, I looked up and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit. Okay, so John hears a voice and he says that it's the same voice that he heard before. That's back in chapter one. When Jesus spoke to John and we're told that his voice was like a trumpet. We don't know what that sounded like, but we know that it stood out, that it didn't even sound human. It sounded like a trumpet. That same voice speaks to him here. So Jesus is still speaking to John. And John, he, something changes. He looks up, he sees a door in heaven. So seemingly his last vision ends. He's back in the flesh. He's looking around. He looks up and sees a door in heaven and Jesus speaks to him. What Jesus says to him is, come on up, come up here. He says in verse, in, in verse one, I will show you, here's the future. 
the things which must take place after these things. I'm going to show you the future, John. Come up here. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. That's the same terminology that we saw in chapter 1 when his first vision began. John, again, is in the Spirit. This is vision terminology. He's, he's seen something, but it's spiritual. He's not there physically in body necessarily. It's kind of like a dream, but it's caused by God, and it's a revelation to John that God wants John to deliver to the churches. He was in the spirit, and what did he see? First, he sees the glory of God. Check it out. Verse two, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. A throne indicates authority and power. Whatever is coming, there's a king, there's a ruler, there is a God, and he describes that to us. There was a throne in heaven and the one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. He describes the one who's sitting on the throne. This is God the Father sitting on the throne. And he says he's like a jasper. He's like a sardius. Now, we're immediately starting to see this simile terminology again, right? You guys know what a simile is? It's, it's, it's saying that something is like something else. He's, he's using the best human words he can to describe what he's seen. But the reality is there are no human words that can fully summarize what he sees. So he says he's kind of like a, like a sardis. That's a that's a red, expensive, valuable stone. It's, it's kind of like Jasper. That's most likely a diamond. He sees God the Father on the throne and all he can describe is precious stones. He sees the one on the throne. He's like a Sardis. He's like a Jasper. But let's keep going. First, we're told about the throne. Then we're told about the one sitting on the throne. So it's, it's shining precious stone. But then he begins to describe not who is on the throne, but what surrounds the throne. Keep going. What is it that is surrounding God the Father on the throne? He was sitting there. Look at the second half of verse 3. There was a rainbow around the throne. And that was like an emerald in appearance. Let's keep going. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So there's the throne and then he's going to zoom out and he's going to start talking about what it is that surrounds God the Father on the throne. First, there's a rainbow. There's a rainbow, but it's a rainbow that is not all the colors that we recognize. No, it's a rainbow that looks like an emerald. It's a green rainbow. Which seems not like a rainbow, right? If you saw something that was circular and you thought... Green, you probably wouldn't think rainbow. But he's grasping for words to describe what he sees. There's something like a rainbow around the throne. It's, it's shining, and it's like an, it's like an emerald. It's, it's green. Maybe it was different colors of green, and that's why he, he called it a rainbow. Well, we don't know, but that's, that's what he sees. So there's, there's the throne. There's God. He's described as precious gems. There's the rainbow. It's described as an as a, as a emerald. And then he begins to talk about another thing that's surrounding the throne, 24 more thrones. There is God the Father on the throne. His throne is surrounded by 24 more thrones. So again, thrones are power and authority, that there's authority given to those on these thrones, and the men that are on those thrones are described. 24 elders sit, we're told in verse 4, upon the 24 thrones. 
There's 24 elders sitting around the throne of God. Who are these elders? Great question. Nobody knows. But I think that the best conclusion we can draw is that these elders are angelic beings. Several people have suggested that perhaps these are like the 12 disciples and maybe, maybe the 12 tribes of Israel. Some have suggested that these represent churches on earth. I don't find those compelling. I think the best conclusion that we can draw just based on what these guys do is that these are a certain class of angels. You have different kind of groups of angels that we're going to see here. We're going to see different creatures in heaven. I think these are one of the created beings that the elders are a certain class of angels. They're going to function just like angels throughout much of this book. We're told that these elders in verse 4 are clothed in white garments. That is that that they're set apart and that they're holy. They're white. They're unstained. they're, They're pure. They have golden crowns upon their heads. These elders have been given crowns. They've been given authority, even rewards. Okay, so we got God the Father, precious stones, rainbows, 24 elders, 24 thrones. He keeps going. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyeballs. Four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Okay, so the throne room's getting weirder. So we zoom out a little bit further. We've got the 24 elders sitting on their 24 thrones. We also have lightning and thunder coming out from the throne. Like, if you're not starting to get wild right now, something's wrong with you. This is crazy. Put yourself in, in John's shoes. He's sitting What is There's lightning coming at me out of the throne. There's thunder, crashes of thunder coming from the throne. Okay? So maybe God's power and his might is being revealed there. Like you see lightning and thunder and you want to run, right? John beholds this from the throne room. There's these seven lamps that are in front of the throne. And that represents the Holy Spirit, we're told. These are the seven spirits of God. The, the Holy Spirit revealed for, for whatever reason as, as seven spirits in the, in the book of Revelation. So the Holy Spirit is present here before the throne. There's a sea of glass. So it's like an ocean, but it's like an ocean made of glass. But the glass is like crystal. You can just feel him begging for words. I'm seeing this thing like an ocean, but it's like glass, but it's like crystal. And then there's these creatures. Closest to the throne, it seems, there's four creatures. And they got eyeballs everywhere. They got eyes in the front and in the back and on the sides. And they got different faces. One of them has a lion face. One of them has a man face. One of them has an eagle face. One of them has a calf face. What on earth? This is crazy. This is crazy. So, so what's happening in this scene? I mean, we got these, these creatures. Each one of them, look at verse 8. Each of the four living creatures, each one of them have six wings. And he repeats it again because this is just nuts. They're full of eyes around and within. He said that twice now. He can't get over the eyes on the creatures. It's fascinating. What's happening? 
Why all the nuances of everything that he's seen in the throne room of God? Well, I think what becomes clear in this text is two things. God is glorious and surrounded with glory. Now, this is so important to where we're going. God is glorious and he is surrounded with glory. John's response when he sees this scene is, what a God and holy smokes, what the the things that are around him are just crazy. They're amazing. They're glorious. He's overwhelmed at what he sees in this room And, and he's overwhelmed with God, but not just God. Everything he sees is overwhelming. God is glorious and he is surrounded with glory. Well, John is not the only one aware of this. All of the creatures that we've seen, we're going to draw as our next point, respond to the glory of God. So the second awe-inspiring element of the overwhelming scene in the throne room is the worship of the Father. God is glorious. He is surrounded with glory. But look what happens in verse 8. These four living creatures with the eyeballs and the six wings, day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The creatures, they are singing a song. And by the way, they never stop. It says they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know the annoying song that your younger siblings sing that this is the song that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friend. This is actually the song that never ends. But this one is glorious. And these creatures, they see God and they can't stop saying, holy, holy, holy. It's interesting. We're told they never cease to say it. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah's in a vision in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees seraphim flying around. They have six wings. What are they crying? Holy, holy, holy. Hundred years later, holy, holy, holy. Thousand years later, holy, holy, holy. They can't stop saying it. They see God and they never get bored with him. They see God and they say, holy, holy, holy. That word means that God is set apart, that there is none like him, that he is completely different from sinful humanity. He's holy. He's perfect. He's set apart. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the all-powerful one who was and who is and who is to come. He surrounds all of time. He is infinite. They don't stop singing this song. As we continue to read, the creatures aren't the only ones praising God. Verse 9, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down. They'll fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. So when the creatures worship, the elders fall down. How often do the creatures worship? They never stop. And we're told when the creatures worship, the elders will fall down. Well, this is perpetual worship of God. The elders who have been given authority are falling down before God. They're taking off the crowns that he has given them and they're casting them to him. 
These authorities are worshiping the glorious God. And here's what they're saying. Worthy, worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You are worthy to receive all glory and worship and honor and power. You're worthy. You're deserving. Why? Why is God worthy to receive all of this worship? Second half of verse 11. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. God is worthy to receive praise and worship because he created everything. Here's what I want us to see here. The amazing creatures in heaven are eternally amazed with God. You know why John draws our attention to these incredible creatures and these incredible beings, these elders and, these cre- and everything that's going on in heaven? Because the amazing and overwhelming things that we see, they're not caught up with themselves. You know what the amazing things are amazed with? God. They can't take their focus off of God. As crazy and as glorious as they seem, God is infinitely better. So the amazing creatures in heaven are eternally amazed with God. Well, all of this thus far is set up for what takes place in chapter 5. Everyone and everything is amazed with God. But then let's look at what happens. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Who's worthy? So, okay, so there's this book and it's got seven seals on it. And there's a question, who's gonna open the book? Who's going to open the seals? To open and to read the book, you had to break the seals so that you could open it and read it. The nature of a seal is that it was permanently closed until someone broke it. And then once you broke it, it couldn't be resealed. It was only opened once. And so you could tell if a document had been opened or not. Well, this book was sealed. And what was needed was someone who could open the seal. And so there's a strong angel who cries out with a loud voice in verse 2, Who's worthy? Who can open this book and break its seals? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. No one was worthy. No one was deserving of the right to open the book that was in God's hand. So John gets a little emotional. John wants to know what's in the book. He's just like all caught up in this thing. He sees this scroll in the hand of God. Who can open it? Who is worthy? No one. John, verse 4, then I began to weep greatly. (laughs) So John, all of a sudden, he's just bawling his eyes out. I want to know what's in the book, he says. Tell me what's in the book. I'm desperate to know what is in the book. So what's in the book? What is in the book? It's a good question. There's a lot of different theories about what's in this book, but I think what's going to become clear is that the contents of this book is exactly what the next few chapters are going to reveal, the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. 
that as these seals are broken, as the book is opened, God's wrath with each seal is being poured out. I have an illustration to show you how I think this works. This, my friends, is the scroll with seven seals. But I just made it in my office. It's not the real scroll. <laughs> this is how I think makes the most sense for these seals to have worked. This is, this is currently bound up right now, okay? And there's, there's, a, there's, I have four seals, so I lied about the seal number. I couldn't fit enough paper clips on this thing. But seal, seal number one with, 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 with seven, typically you think of a seal as something rubber put right here. But I think that this would have been progressively unrolled and seals would have been broken with each piece of revelation. And so right now it's sealed, but when, when the first seal is taken off, you could open part of the book until you got to the next seal. Okay, so, so the seal reveals this much. And what's going to happen is John wants to know what's in there. A seal is going to be broken and the scroll is going to be opened and reveal the first wrath of God. That's what the book contains. Then a second seal is going to be broken. And when that second seal is broken, you read more. You see more of the context of the book. And then a third seal is broken and you can open more and more and reveal more of the book. As we see these seven seals being broken, we're told the content of the wrath of God that's being poured out on the world. I think that's how the seven seals would have worked. John wants these seven seals to be broken. He wants to know what's in the book. I got to know what's in it. But there's no one who is worthy to open the scroll. That leads us to our third awe-inspiring element, and that is the worthiness. The worthiness of Jesus. John is crying because no one can open the book. Then one of the elders says to John, stop weeping. Okay, stop your crying. Stop your weeping. John, why should John stop his weeping? Behold, says the elder, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The good news that's delivered to John is that he doesn't have to be upset because the book's going to be revealed. That the, the lion of Judah, that's Jesus. The root of David, that is Jesus. He has overcome. He is victorious. And because he is victorious, he can open the book. Verse 5, verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb, standing as if slain. No one is all in all of creation is worthy. But the elder says to John, there is one who is worthy. It is the lion of Judah. John, with tears still in his eyes, lifts his eyes to see the lion of Judah. And he sees a lamb. A lamb that's standing there, but standing there as if it had been slain. This lamb is alive, but it shows every mark of having been dead. 
This is the resurrected Jesus Christ who was slain and yet was raised, who was dead and who is now alive and in his resurrection from the dead has reigned victorious over death. And because he has defeated death, he is worthy. He is the only one who is worthy to open the seals. The lamb is standing. He was slain, but he's standing. He has, we're told, keep reading, we're told that the lamb has seven horns. The, the elder, there's a lamb standing as if slain, verse 6. He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The lamb comes and he takes the book, the book that no one else could touch and the book that no one else could open. The lamb is worthy to open. Remember, we already talked about what is the content of the book. As every seal is broken and the book is revealed, the wrath of God that's being poured out upon humanity is revealed with every seal. That leads us then to this truth The living lamb alone is worthy to reveal God's judgment upon the world. It is Jesus Christ alone, because he is victorious, who can break the seals. It is him alone who can reveal the contents of the book by breaking the seals. That is the judgment of God upon the world. Only Jesus has the authority to do that. It's only him. Why does Jesus alone have the authority to reveal God's judgment upon the world? That is the question that's answered for us. As we jump into our our final point, our final element, and that is the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus. The lamb takes the scroll. He takes the scroll out of the hand of God and check out what happens. Verse eight, when he, Jesus, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each of them has a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now that's important because in chapter four, we saw that they'd been singing the same song for a really, 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 really long time. But when Jesus takes the scroll from the father, a new song hits their lips. The elders and the creatures start singing something new. Check it out. Verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Why are you worthy? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The Lamb is worthy. They sing. They're all singing in unison. You're worthy. Why? Because there's four things that are revealed. First, you were slain. Second, you purchased men for God in your death and resurrection. Third, you made those men a kingdom and priests. And fourth, you're going to make those men reign upon the earth. Because, because the lamb has done those things, he alone can reveal the judgment of God upon the earth. Understand this. This is so fundamental to this. Because Jesus was slain by men and because he is the redeemer of men, He alone is worthy to open the judgment upon men who have rejected him. Because men slayed him 
And because he redeemed men, he alone is the one who can, who can open the seal that will pour God's wrath upon mankind. Because they have rejected Jesus. I'll leave that up there so you can write that down, but we're going to keep moving. These guys are singing a new song. They're singing a loud song about how worthy Jesus is. These elders and these, these creatures can't stay on their feet. Every time we see them, they're falling back down. It's like they stand up. They've been worshiping God. They get back up on their feet. They see something new and they just hit the deck again. Time after time after time, because of the glory of God, followed by the glory of Christ, they can't stay on their feet. While they're singing, they're worshiping. Check out verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. A myriad is 10,000. So 10,000 of 10,000s. And thousands of thousands. So you have angels that you cannot even begin to count. And what are they doing? Yeah, they're praising Jesus too. So they're saying with a loud voice, worthy. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let me summarize it for you. Worthy is the lamb to get everything. He gets it all because he alone is worthy because of what he's done. And every, verse 13, we're going to zoom out more. Not only myriads and myriads of angels, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea and, and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, they're praising Jesus too. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and Ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The elders still can't stay on their feet. A new song starts, and the elders are back on their faces, worshiping Christ. Because He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. He alone can break the seal that will open God's wrath upon mankind. I want us to see this amazing, amazing scene of worship in the throne room. It's all in the context of Jesus opening up a book that pours out tribulation upon mankind. Like it's not a sweet, pleasant thing that's coming. And yet all of heaven is worshiping on their faces Jesus Christ because he gets to open this book. We understand something that's so important and that is that we are to worship Jesus both for his mercy and his justice. Jesus is merciful and we worship him for that. But in this scene, Jesus is being worshiped not only for, for being slain by men, but for his worthiness to open the book that's going to pour out God's wrath upon mankind. Jesus is worshiped for that. And this is all meant to produce true and genuine worship in those who behold this scene. Faithfulness, repentance, a biblical response. Respond to this book. Respond with repentance and faithfulness because Jesus is worthy for all that he is. In his mercy and in his justice, 
worship Christ. Next week, we're going to see him open the seals as God's wrath is poured upon mankind and mankind again is pressed to repent and to remain faithful.